Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today, so we have a sausage party, just the three of us mansplaining to you happily for perhaps an abbreviated period, although if we're mansplaining, you never know how long we're going to go because we each have to mansplain to each other as well as to you. So we have a lot of little bits of things to talk about. Um, uh, I want to start with uh, the uh, the nature of the delusion uh, that uh, election denialism uh, has become uh, and always was, but now is particularly startlingly delusional by uh, taking you on a brief journey south of Tucson to Cochise County in Arizona, where uh, there are three election supervisors, two Republicans and one Democrat, and the two Republicans are refusing to certify the results in Cochise County. Why does this matter? Well, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a very Republican county. Uh, and uh, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, the two losing uh, candidates at the top of the ticket, governor and senator, won there by 18 to 20 points. Um, but here's why it matters. They don't want to certify. They do not claim that there are any irregularities in their own election results, the Republican supervisors. They are doing it to protest what went on in Maricopa County which, first of all, is not their remit, it's not their issue, they have no authority issue, whatever, but that they want to somehow create a circumstance in which uh, you will have a revolt that will cause something or other or another thing. The final certification is Friday. They refuse to certify on Monday. And here's why this is hilarious. It is hilarious because there is in Cochise County is part of Arizona's sixth congressional district. Uh, in Arizona's sixth congressional district, a uh, Republican named Juan Siscomani won uh, with 50.5% of the vote to Kirsten Engel, the Democrats, 49.5% of the vote. Juan Siscomani won by about 3,500 votes. So uh, in Cochise County, which is part of this district, Juan Siscomani won by 14,000 votes. If they fail to certify, Arizona law ultimately requires the state, if a court doesn't step in, to certify the results statewide without... Cochise County's numbers, in which case a Republican seat in the House of Representatives will flip to the Democrats. Juan Siscomani will no longer represent the 6th District uh, in the House of Representatives. Rather, Kirsten Engel, who lost by 3,500 votes and would uh, Juan Siscomani's total would decline from 172,000 to 150, my math is so good, 158,000 or something like that. And Kirsten Engel would stay at 168,000 and a loss of 3,500 votes would turn into a victory of 10,000 votes. This is what the county's own supervisors, who are Republicans, want to see happen, apparently, is for a Democrat to represent them 
in the House of Representatives as they attempt to protest the way in which an election was conducted in a county over which they have no sway, no authority, nothing. Uh, this is a district that's represented by David Schweikert, who, uh, who of course, retired. Did he vote for impeachment? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, uh, so that this is uh, so Noah. Well, you got to. Uh, I want you to read. Not to read the entire article, but <clears throat> you got to read the quote, um, which is a perfect encapsulation yes. of this victim mentality in which they wallow. Um, the the yeah. part about being kicked around. So I want to tee yeah, off on so, that. So this is a piece by Charles Homans in the New York Times. And I'm not going to use the New York Times as the, the... These are quotes given to the New York Times in interviews by Peggy Judd, one of the two Republican supervisors in Cochise, the two Republican super, who voted to delay the certification of county results. Our small counties, we're just sick and tired of getting kicked around and not being respected. Who is kicking Cochise County around? Cochise County ran an election. Uh, you know, Carrie Lake won by 18. Uh, the House Republican candidate won the county by 16. Nobody's questioning the results. They claim that there are no regularities in the county. How are the small counties getting kicked? How is the small county getting kicked around? What's they just the want respect, John, because... They're smart, not like everybody says, like dumb. <laughs> they uh they don't yeah. want to be kicked around. So they're gonna mount this, you know, quixotic crusade against vote results, and it will end up in court and they'll be kicked around by a judge. Right. That okay. is what's so, satisfying. The being hey. kicked around is what they like. It's not something they'll ever admit. It's not something they could admit to themselves. The the comfort that they derive and it has to be satisfying from having hanging on to this persecution complex this idea that there are forces arrayed against them that are bigger than them that are ill-defined um that can't be fought in conventional means and so you have to engage in really self-destructive displays in a very teenage angsty fashion is it satisfying to them so well, you're saying it's... that they what they need here is a reckless and stupid gesture <laughs> a futile stupid gesture stupid, exactly. futile, stupid gesture or uh, the other the other analogy is um, that they're like uh, they're like putting a gun to their own head and saying, you know, watch out or I'll shoot. I mean, or the the idiot gets it. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. idiot gets it exactly. Um, it's I think you know these these types. I, I think they'd like to win, but they'd also like to lose and have a tantrum, and. Uh, if if either one is the goal, if you have a party that doesn't hate to lose at the very least, then that party will lose and lose and lose and lose. Yeah, right. And and that's again, there's something satisfying about that. The news this morning out of Politico, which is interesting that this is happening at all. But the RNC is commissioning an autopsy. Uh, I don't think they did that in 2016. I don't think they did it in 2020. Well, why um, would but, they do an autopsy in 2016? They won in 2016. 
Right. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, 2018 and 2020 is what I, I I believe under under uh, McDaniel. I don't think they've been conducting autopsies. Really? Um, you mean they didn't do any analysis of how how loud how badly they were doing? Yeah. I mean, oh, you're right. Because the 26. No, the, the 20. Okay. Because the, the 2012 autopsy became something of after 2016, it became something of a farce just because of the immigration recommendations in it. So they didn't revisit this process until now, a, a decade later, as far as I recall. And uh, among the the lawmakers who are conducting this uh, um, review is Katie Britt, new senator from Alabama, who's very good. Monica De La Cruz is a representative from Texas. John James, who's been around in Michigan forever, is going to go into the House of Representatives. But also on this panel is Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters. Tell me what on earth a candidate who underperformed most of the Republicans in his state, a state where most of those Republicans lost every statewide race, uh, has to offer in a zero-sum game of winning or losing? The answer to this question is not, I like his policy preferences or he fights or whatever it is that you think advances your ideological objectives because parties are not ideological enterprises. They win or they lose. They're vehicles for winning. What does Blake Masters bring to this table? Well, I I believe, uh, based on what you told me, that the the story is that Blake Masters wants to... um represent those who believe that the election of 2022 was lost by the consultant class. Right. right. So he, so he brings a scapegoating narrative to the table. Really? I can't, <laughs> I can't believe anybody would do something so low as to bring a scapegoating narrative to the table. But um, I, you understand why that advances his personal political objectives. I, but it I detracts believe, from the political cannot, objectives of the Republican party. Well, Okay, so th- I think the idea is well, we need a representative of the you know of the MAGA wing, the losers on this panel. <laughs> well, I mean, look at it this way. One way of looking at it is to say that um, he could be there, and then they could all sit there and you know beat the crap out of him every time he opens his mouth. You know what I mean? Like he's on the panel to be the whipping boy. I think you'd be happy to do that in absentia. Well. I mean, who knows? Like, uh, number one, who knows? Number two, who cares? Autopsy, schmautopsy. Like, everybody now knows what happened. All of the data are in, and the fact is that Trump ruined the Republicans' chances in 2022, just as he lost the House, the Senate. (laughs) Just as he lost the House in 2018, he lost the presidency and the Senate in 2020, and he... And he uh, interfered with and interceded in the wave in 2022. And they can, I don't know what they're going to talk about. Well, I don't know uh, what the autopsy is going to say, because if it doesn't way, on say the, that, everybody will know that it's a that it's a sham of a tragedy of a farce of a sham. On on that note that everyone knows what happened. So you see the Herschel, the Herschel Walker campaign wants Trump to stay away from the runoff uh, wisely. Uh, and uh, Newt's on record as saying he should stay away as well. Um, you know, the ingratitude, the ingratitude yeah. of Herschel Walker, the ingratitude is really startling. Um, I mean, the logic of that is just so hard to avoid. If you don't want this guy who's the presidential candidate, who's a likely presidential candidate, is a presidential candidate, like still the front runner nominee, can't go to a swing state because he's going to lose the swing state for other candidates. I mean, how How do you not draw the obvious conclusion from this? Let's put it another way. These people are so self-destructive. It's hilarious. If you draw the conclusion that Trump can't show his face in Georgia, 
2022 because he'll lose the runoff for Walker, then you're basically saying if Trump is the candidate in 2024, he will lose Georgia. I don't know how else to put it, right? He'll lose Georgia. Republicans and losing Georgia is one of the reasons that, you know, Biden is president today is that Trump lost Georgia. So I don't, you know, already you're now writing off, you're writing off a key swing state in 2024 by dint of the fact that the entire political class understands that Trump has to stay out of it. And that the Republican who can win in that state without without is the Republican who showed him faced him down. That's Brian Kemp, right? Who won by seven or eight points. Hang on, the My Pillow uh, guy has entered the race for RNC chair. He can turn this thing around. He really can because you know. I guarantee he says, you, he'll draw more votes vote, than Lee Zeldin. Listen to this: <laughs> in a it. in a country in which it is likely that 160 million people are going to vote in 2024. Mike Lindell is going to run on a platform that no computer should be used in the tabulation of results. In 160 of 160 million votes. Now, granted, those votes are counted in 3,309 counties or however many counties there are. No computer must be allowed to use. Remember, I just want to point out this guy was a crack addict. So. He was a crack addict. He is still a crack addict, even if he's not doing crack. And who knows whether he's doing crack or not. He sells a crappy pillow, morons on Fox News and OANN and whatever, buy his stupid pillow. And he sits there like a lunatic and talks crap. And we're even talking about him. It's hilarious. He's the only other guy in the race for RNC besides Lee Zeldin, who hasn't even officially declared, I don't think. Well, the, you know what? Again, I just and want to people are coming you. out and saying they want uh, McDaniel to retain this this role even after she's presided over the decimation of the party. It is so hilariously self destructive. Okay, the cycle but, this party is in, but this, it's cringeworthy. But it's also like if you de detach yourself from it, there's objective comedy in this. Okay, well, but, you well, know, it's not it's it's yeah. not purely destructive. Also, it's it's transformative in the sense that everything we're talking about here, including what's going on in Arizona is um this this segment of the party is turning uh uh the, the their involvement in this from uh having to do with elections at all into activism right it's not it's it, this isn't it's no longer being used as a body to win elections but to advance an activist cause and that's it and that is that that's a totally new use for that. Yeah, I was trying to think of what it what it is, because it's not a political party in the sense that political parties exist to win elections. It's not really a cult of personality per se, although that's that's dominant. Uh, it's more like a club. I can't think of any other way to describe it. It's like a social club. It's like Friars. But I mean, that's literally but that's literally what the RNC is. I've told you before. Right. The RNC that there are one hundred and sixty eight votes. For RNC chairman. So you become RNC chairman when the Republican committee men and women uh, vote you in as a majority of 168. So what is that? That's uh, 84? 80, you need 85 votes to become RNC chairman. 
in the absence of a president who basically names the RNC chairman if he's the Republican president. I'm looking to see what date. I, I cannot, apparently the RNC winter meeting has not yet been scheduled, which is when this, which is when this vote would take place. Um, but, you know, you, since it's, you need to win 85 votes, anyone could enter, you know, until three days beforehand, you know, I mean, it's not like, it's not like you need to, you know, run a campaign or something like that. And um, one of my favorite stories about this is in 1993, I did I already tell this story? I guess I did. That uh, Spencer Abraham uh, decided to run for RNC chairman uh, with Bill Crystal as his as his RNC campaign manager, uh, and it was Spence Abraham uh, and uh, Haley Barber and a couple of other people who were running, and Haley Barber won. If Spence Abraham had won the RNC chairmanship, he would not. Uh, have run for Senate in Michigan the following year and won and become a U.S. Senator. Haley Barber, of course, after being RNC chairman, ran and became governor of Mississippi. So uh, this is the kind of, you know, this is, this is, you know, take out, you know, the world of the Republican presidents who, uh, you know, pick and choose who they want as the RNC chairman you know, this is a this is a can be potential real stepping stone um, for for somebody, and uh, and I don't know what's you know who knows what's going to happen, but it's like it's a it's a pretty valuable thing. You raise a lot, you can raise a lot of money, you can have a lot of influence, and I don't. Prince Priebus no was one... the chief of staff, White House chief of staff, most powerful position in Washington after succeeding Michael Steele, who presided over. 64 seat victory in 2010 and was summarily ousted in well, the of January course. of 2011. Yeah. Because he didn't fight, Noah. He didn't fight. You know what I'm saying? No. There needs to be I don't fight. Know what you're saying. These people I don't know insane. what I'm saying either. <laughs> These people are okay, insane. But, right. So here's the problem. Okay. So we have, we have uh, the Democratic Party, which proved in the last election that it is an aggressive, spirited, never-say-die group of people who have com strong competitive instincts and are you know, willing to go to the mattresses and really face down you know, headwinds and see what they can do. And then we have a lot of the machinery of the Republican Party that has been taken over by incompetent psychotics. So who would you so the issue set right favors republicans let's say but who would you rather have if you were like if you were sort of like doing under the veil of ignorance if you were a baby and you had no idea what and you wanted to win which party would you would you want to go into when you were born because you wouldn't want to go into the Republican Party. And of course, these fights, like in Cochise County, so this is like a rock-ribbed Republican, MAGA, whatever, 20 points Republican direction. And they they win. They win in the county. 
But of course, it's not just that elections have been nationalized. They've also been statized and all of that. So just because they win in their own county, they live among the people that agree with them. They, they've done the big sort. They're there. Everybody agrees with them. And then they don't win statewide. And then they they piss all over their own county's participation in the statewide and even in the national elect in the in the house and you know in the Washington election putting potentially putting themselves under a democratic member of congress if they don't certify their results well think of how oppressed they'll be then uh, i mean they won't okay. be oppressed at all but you know in their own addled mm -hmm. minds think of how right. think of Think of the the delicious persecution they will enjoy. It is just so delicious. I hope they. I really do hope they enjoy it because uh, you know. I, but the, I don't know what they enjoy. I don't. I'm going to conclude by quoting again from Peggy Judd, the uh, Republican election one of the th three supervisors in Cochise County. So Katie Hobbs, the incoming governor, who is Secretary of State, uh, and by the way, could perfectly live without Cochise County's votes. You know what I mean? Like they went eighteen, they went eighteen points for Carrie Lake. So if they were somehow invalidated, this would only make her margin larger. Not that she needs her margin any larger, but she, you know, in line with her duty, is going to sue Cochise County to make them certify the election results. Again, you could make the claim that if she were really a strong partisan Democrat, she could say, okay, fine, and then they could get a House seat. But By the way, gonna, yeah, something occurs to me. We talk a lot about how there is actually, if you look at it, election denial on both sides, extensive, you know, among, among Democrats, and in many ways Democrats started this. But I have to say, this shooting yourself in the foot strategy to prove that elections are fraudulent, Democrats wouldn't do. There's a difference right. here. Um, I think the MAGA types mean it in a way that 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 the Democrats actually never do. Well, they mean it because of what Noah is saying, that what the entire MAGA argument is that the order of battle in the United States on every front is going against them. Right? culturally politically educationally in terms of how the economy is structured it's all going against them and the only thing that they have in their favor is that somewhere deep inside the will of the people the people are with them and that everybody is being screwed which is how election denialism that's the logic of election denial right is that they're all screwed and that they're voting a certain way and their votes are being taken away from them take election denialism away and um they should all move to budapest with rod dreher i mean there's no there's nothing left you know the country is gone we're evil and sick and communist and 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 depraved and all of that and we, you know what we what they need to do is go find a, a a homogeneous country of 11 million people and you know drink you know eat eat pollock shinton and 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 drink things with schlag and have have a good time i mean because what else is left so i mean they still have yeah go ahead just perhaps it's a little it's solipsism on my part but the sacrifice of conservatism as an organizing principle a political philosophy in which personal agency is paramount i mean these people is is 
apparent. These people believe themselves to be passive participants in their own lives. Everything is done to them. They uh, contribute nothing to their own uh, uh, suboptimal conditions. It's just a it's a conspiracy, a vast conspiracy arrayed against their interests. Right. Um, I wanted which to make conservatism precludes. Right. I wanted to read that's very important because that that leads into the quote that I was going to read, the final quote from Peggy Judd of Cochise County. Uh, Katie Hobbs wrote a letter saying that, you know, uh, those uh, who want to block certification are engaging in baseless conspiracies, quote unquote. And Peggy Judd counters, quote, the secretary of state calls them conspiracy theorists, but a theory is just a fact to be proven. So maybe there'll be conspiracy facts one day. Really, really makes you think. You know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, conspiracy facts. You know, like the pizza parlor. There's a, there's a child molestation and slavery ring with a adrenochrome in the basement of a pizza parlor at Connecticut and Nebraska and Washington, D.C. So uh, the Republican Party has a terrible is is, is 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 has a terrible disease. And the question is, is it is it is it chronic? Is it. You know, is, is it a metastasis or can it be excised? And that's what the next two years I think are effectively going to be about, right? Because um, uh, if sunlight is the best disinfectant, winning in a new direction will be the chemotherapy and radiation that could, in fact, you know, kill this cancer off because it is a cancer. Like, if this is a serious body of thought within the Republican Party, the Republican Party is not going to win what happened in 2022 is going to happen in some version in in every election that follows it look this is a very divided country it's not and so you know uh, things are hard won and close run and all democrats need to do is say look just look at these lunatics and it really does make it it's all you have to say is look at these lunatics it's just not a hard sell that's essentially what happened in 2022 is look at these lunatics i with mean the head, <laughs> with the head lunatic is the guy who's you know eating with eating with you know an ambulatory schizophrenic who wants to go death con three on the jews and a and a rich boy lunatic uh who you know says that the jews killed christ so enjoy you know we should all enjoy yeah so i don't know i mean <laughs> the democrats could rescue republicans from their disunity right now if if they wanted to for example i mean this is kind of inaudible but joe biden seems to think that the remainder of his first term in office should be focused on gun control and an assault weapons ban i can't think of any topic that would unite republicans even the small minority more than that uh i mean it's not something we know how this goes we've been doing this for a decade and a half it's sort of a rote uh, attempt at positioning and if it's just a positioning statement fine but there's a very small majority in the house that has effectively ended the legislative phase of joe biden's presidency absent a crisis there are a lot of issues i can i can't think of any but there are so maybe they're not a lot but there are probably at least a handful of issues that could so some disunit more disunity in the Republican ranks, maybe peel off a couple of members who are disquieted by the prospect of voting for whatever the Republican position is on X issue. Gun control isn't one of them. 
I'm not sure what would be that issue, but there got to be better sure. issues to to pick than than inducing the kind of unifying uh, rally around the flag effect that gun control would have on Republicans. It just seems foolish. Good point. Uh, I mean, the issue set that Democrats are most are are, are themselves are most excited about, and that gives them mo- the most you know fervor, are uh, abortion rights, which of course. They could they can't make it. I mean, they could try to make a national issue by having pointless votes nationally. But of ha- having objected to that being done by Republicans over the la- over the last six months, it would be a weird uh, heel turn. But, uh, you know, and energy stuff, uh, green stuff, energy stuff, um, which, of course, will have can have profoundly deleterious consequences for them in certain swing states uh if doug mastriano was not at the top of the ticket in pennsylvania making it difficult for western pennsylvania to you know to pull more uh you know fracking out of the ground whatever i don't know all right let's take a break and hear from our first sponsor Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights, Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Okay. Uh, there's an interesting feature in the Washington Post this morning on America's homicide crisis. And it goes, it is a portrait of events, uh, moments of horror in nine cities in which, um, you know, where uh, ho- the homicide rate has surged since 2020 and where uh uh, 80% of the victims are uh, black uh, and uh, the pain and the human toll and all of this. And what's interesting about this piece being done this way is that there has been a concerted effort among liberal criminologists and people generally in the kind of criminal justice studying world to make this argument that in fact, New York is safer living in New York City is safer than living in rural Oklahoma. Uh, this was a big topic on Twitter three or four weeks ago. People are writing about it. Somebody wrote some jaw-dropping piece in The Atlantic about it. I Whatever. I, I don't know how seriously to take it. Um, uh, what do you make of it, Noah? Just that now the truth can be told. Um, we've been talking about that, <clears throat> about this for the better part of a month, more more than a month, I, I guess, that, you know, this argument was that it isn't happening. You know, um, there, there isn't really a crime surge. And it was predicated on faulty and uh, absent data uh, that the FBI crime statistics, which were released in September, um, showed violent crime dropping in the United States. But the data did not account for places like New York and Los Angeles. And so this argument was predicated on false data and nobody, it was an elision that um, served and advanced a political interest. The political interest has been served. So now the story can be told. Um, When I came across a reaction to this from um, Garance Frankie Gruta, 
who noted that, um, you know, the vast majority of the victims of violent crime are African-Americans. Now, by the transitive property that Republicans are very familiar with, downplaying an issue that disproportionately affects African-Americans renders the person doing the downplaying racially suspect. Those are the rules as I understood them. Maybe things have changed. No, those are the rules, but the issue is now recategorized. It's not a crime issue. It's an, it's a systemic racism issue. There is no crime issue. Crime issue is still a made-up thing that uh, Republican voters believe because Fox News tells them that. There's no crime issue. There's a racism issue. That's 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 what that's what can be. That's the truth that can be told. Well, it's not really a racism issue, right? Though, because we're talking about. Well, no, of course not really. Right. But so then it's a guns issue. Or it's a guns issue. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's, it just justifies their priors. But right. the bottom line is it was a, it was a fraudulent um, act of aspiring press secretaries in the commentariat um, who it if they had the capacity for shame, would probably be feeling it this morning. Um, but a lot of us were, and, and it's not like crime didn't matter in the election. The Republican Party owes its majority in the House, likely to Southern California and New York, uh, even downstate New York, close to downstate New York. So, and crime was a particularly um, salient issue for those voters, and it resonated in the election. So I don't know if this this attempt at running block on this thing actually worked. Probably didn't. But it was nevertheless very annoying. And I'm allowed to be annoyed at it. And I am. Oh, by the way, the New York Times the other day did a piece that said the Republicans want, you know, had this, uh, they acknowledged the surge in the Republican vote in New York State and then said it was because Republicans effectively scared voters in exurban counties uh, into voting for them because uh, of the idea that uh, crime was going to move uh, out of the city and and toward them and that this was, you know, an unbelievably cynical act of, of voter marauding. Uh, and so, you know, you do get it from 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 both sides, like. uh when it when it matters, they're happy to say that they they are happy to say just like everybody, you know, when things don't go their way, that voters are stupid and are easily, you know, gulled into believing stupid things like when there's a national crime surge, it may come to your town or county because that never happened before. You know, I mean, what a ridiculous thing to think that if there's a crime surge in a state that has passed bail reform, that you live in Columbia County, you know, New York, and that, you know, gee, somebody who kills, you know, somebody who does violence there also gets to take advantage of the state's bail reform laws and be out, you know, or, you know, the fact that people aren't necessarily, you know, going to spend their time prosecuting misdemeanors if, uh, if the state uh, judiciary isn't isn't going to uphold convictions and stuff like that, like no, that's not going to have any effect on where you live. But, yeah, that, that 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 doesn't happen. It's not like there's crime. Apparently, there's incredible crime in rural Oklahoma, but apparently, you can't get crime in rural New York or exurban New York because uh, that has nothing to do with anything. Anyway, it is pretty uh, maddening. I think that we've gotten to this point. And we've also gotten to the point where we are going to hear from our second advertiser. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. 
whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Act and Unwind comes in, just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute. There's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary, or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Acton Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Okay, panelists topic. Where do we go now? Backlash. What do... Really? You want to yeah, talk about Okay, yeah. I'm going to. Okay. I am going to read to you from our friend Eli Lake. Uh, Eli Lake sent me a text the other day, uh, which I want to read to you, uh, or yesterday, okay? Uh, first, he said, isn't it weird that the country's leading white supremacist in 2022 has a Hispanic surname and is working to elect a black man as president? Not excusing his anti-Semitism, not excusing Trump, just saying, though, it's performance art. Um. And then he says, you know, Nick Fuentes is a real anti-Semite, but Kanye hiring him for his campaign is Andy Kaufman. Um, our community needs to understand the difference between anti-Semites with power or in a position to achieve power versus incel losers and fringe basket cases. Both are threats, but very different threats. This is kind of what Abe was saying yesterday. I think it's an interesting perspective. Uh, who is Nick Fuentes? There is this whole idea that Kanye, yeah, look, Kanye is a cultural figure of some real note. But then, you know, he was, there was this whole question about whether or not if he ran for president, he would siphon votes or do da da da, blah, blah, blah. And then that never happened, right? Because he's too crazy for anybody to vote for and he couldn't get on the ballot and all of that. Um, I can I give you, I'll, I'll yes, here's here are my thoughts. I, I spoke to Eli about this yesterday too. Um, I would agree with Eli wholly if the fringe was still kept to the fringe as it used to be. The performance artists he's talking about, the fringe he's talking about, sat down for dinner with the ex-president of the United States. Yeah. Why and is it, why it, do we know this guy's name? It's not because we want to. He has been legitimized by somebody who had and potentially could have Far more authority, political authority, if that's what we're basing the relevance of anti-Semitism on, which strikes me as misdirection, uh, far more authority than Ilan Omar, than Rashida Tlaib, who are threats. And there is a double standard. Agreed. I, we're all I, on the I, same I, page. I... Nevertheless, we're not talking about Democrats at this particular moment. We are trying to establish and maintain for ourselves a moral consistency 
which will advance our political objectives if we are consistent. Um, so uh, I don't want to say that he could be more of a threat than Elon Omar. Okay, I'm sorry, I can't look. Let's talk about the different kinds. Nick of Fuentes. I'm talking about Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump. Okay, I thought you were talking about Nick Fuentes. Of wow. course, he's a more he could be more of a danger than Elon Omar. And if he's uh, if he if he if and he this, this is not it's not as though this is an outlier. This is part of a pattern. Donald Trump. You if you flutter your eyes at Donald Trump, he pretends like he doesn't know who David Duke is, which advances David Duke's agenda, makes him part of the conversation, communicates to people who don't deserve to be communicated to that it's okay to emerge from the shadows. That's him. He's doing it. He's been doing it. He's doing it now. I just want to talk about the two different kinds of anti-Semitism on display here because it's it, 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 it's it's very interesting. Or three. We got Kanye, we got Fuentes, and we have um, Elon Omar. So uh, Kanye is the uh, evil influence of the Jewish cabal, right? The doctors did, you know, drugged him, and the and and they they're they're trying to keep his kids from him, and they're they're they run Hollywood and all of that. Okay, so that's the Jewish cabal anti-Semitism, the conspiracy, the Jewish conspiracy theory anti-Semitism. Nick Fuentes is classic Christian anti-Semitism. Jews killed, they're unchristian, they killed Christ. You know, they're 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 diseased and poisoned and evil. And then you have Ilhan Omar, and Ilhan Omar is Jews buy people with their money. That's you know, it's all about the Benjamins. They throw money around and they control you with their money, which is kind of related to the Kanye one, but is kind of a separate thing, right? That's the Jews are wildly more successful than they have any right to be, and they keep themselves successful using using their evil money you know, to you know b- b- buy off people and corrupt them uh, the way they're corrupted uh none of these is any better than any other they're all they're all aspects of the same idea that this tiny population that makes up 0.001% of the population of the planet earth is a malign force that needs to be extirpated and uh, has more power and more control, uh, shouldn't have any power, shouldn't have any control, and has too much, and is destroying our our, our public life and uh, and you know poisoning our children and doing horrible things to everybody, um, and uh, privileging one over the other. I think uh, as as some people are sort of are are, are doing, um, sort of saying. You know, I held no brief for Elon Omar, but at least she apologized, which she didn't really do in 2019 when she said this thing about the Benjamins. You know, she still believes it. She believes it. Rashida Tlaib believes that this is the nature of this kind of um, this this kind of uh, perception. And you know, um, um, it. We're now into seven or eight years of this reemergence of anti-Semitism um, and uh, the difference in the United States from the other countries in which there are significant Jewish populations outside of Israel. And there of course aren't many, right? England, France, not, not many is that um, their public class, the public classes in these countries 
are much more close are much closer to their the old fashioned anti-Semitism that was a lingua franca in those countries over the course of the last thousand years. Um, I mean, you have it sort of emerge. You had it emerging in the Labour Party in Britain in you know in the late uh, uh, 2010s. Obviously, very left wing with a focus on the Palestinians, all of that. But but basically, breathing in the same kind of noxious air as like classic parlor anti-Semitism uh, in England, and you have the belittling in France of the threat to Jews from non-Jews and from anti-Semites. Uh, on the grounds that uh, it would be too socially disruptive to do anything to protect Jews from uh, violence, uh, that would just that 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 could create worse tensions for ethnically French people or whatever. None of that ever really existed. That was that's not the kind of anti-Semitism that ever exists in the United States, which is sort of atavistic. It has it's connected the way all anti-Semitism is connected. But um, but there was no really. I mean, there you know, like sort of genteel anti-Semitism in the case when you're talking about hiring and you know education and stuff like that. And there were there were anti-Semitic. But the United States has never had this. And in some weird way, we are we are retconning. We're we are backing into a situation in which a major political figure in the United States and the other party, with its tolerance of, um left-wing anti-Semitism uh, or its inability, let's say, to extirpate left-wing anti-Semitism from its ranks. The danger, the threat here is that 10, 15 years from now, we're going to live in a country in which anti-Semitism is a going concern. It isn't yet. I don't believe you can say that it is yet, except in these horrible incidents where crazy people shoot up synagogues. But it isn't yet in terms of like a conventional conversation on some college campuses. You have, you know, the stirrings of this, right? Jews shouldn't be allowed to have student organizations, shouldn't be allowed to join student organizations. You shouldn't be allowed to be a Zionist on campus, that kind of thing. But we're still like a generation away or half a generation away without some kind of intermediary event that 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 chokes this off from America starting to resemble Europe in these, you know, uh, really unpleasant ways. And uh, I am struck by the fact that very politically conservative Jewish organizations that pro like the Zionist organization, where they probably wanted to stay out of this and not say anything. Cause of course ZOA like honored Donald Trump at a, at an event uh, a couple of weeks ago in New York, couldn't they couldn't not say something? They are supposed to be tribunes of anti-Semitism against anti-Semitism, and they had to talk. And I just, I, I do think that the backlash is significant because it does seem to show that Trump, either Trump has a really evil compass in which he is discerning this change and thinking that he can somehow you know slingshot himself through it with it as a kind of accelerant quietly or he is just off you know he's just sort of lost the thread and like you or would say he's the most transparent human being on the planet 
His his motivations are quite easy to understand. If you flutter your eyes in his direction, you get a seat at the table. Doesn't matter who you are. That lack of discernment, that lack of judgment, isn't necessarily evil on his part. I don't think he's an anti-Semite. It does advance the objectives of anti-Semites because he lacks the discernment and judgment to exclude them. Yeah, I, that's. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, I just yeah. want to say another point on this about Ilhan Omar supposed apology and all these stories and this this applies to all of them Kyrie Irving um, people calling for Trump to apologize um the, the one thing that should never happen when when public figures say anti-semitic things is a demand for an apology uh I the these apologies when when they have when they are compelled um are only there to serve the anti-Semite. They are there to help her or him move on from this moment, get cover, put it, put it behind them, uh, you know, and, and have this go-to excuse that they, that they apologized. Um, it is a terrible idea. I don't want, if you hate me, I don't want your apology for hating me. I want to know you hate me, uh, and I will respond accordingly. Um, uh, this this whole move to ask them to apologize is absolutely absurd. And by the way, I don't I don't think we see it as much in cases of other types of prejudice. It's a weird thing that with anti-Semites, it's it's a sort of, oh, there's a educational process that they haven't been exposed to that, you know, then they'll they'll sort of come around. There's a there's a, you know, a. a, a, a in, a seeking to enrich them uh, a response that you don't see uh, in with 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 other bigots. You really don't. You know, that is really a brilliant point because I was as you're speaking, I'm thinking about how somebody says something racist. And then there is no forgiveness. Right? There's just there's no forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah, you, and you, certain... you, you can't be forgiven. You say something publicly racist, you lose your job, you lose your career, you lose your profession. You could just be a you could be a, a, a taxi dispatcher. Doesn't matter. You could be a fourteen year old kid, right? And so what? What? Or, yeah, you can be a you can be a twenty year old kid, and somebody well, discovers that when you were fourteen year old, yeah. yeah, discovered you said something when you were fourteen. Yeah, and then I mean, part of this is that there is this whole professional class, and Jonathan Greenblatt, the odious and repulsive head of the Anti-Defamation League, is one of them, who sees these things as a fundraising opportunity. It's like this is fantastic. There's an outbreak of anti-Semitism. Maybe I can get a million dollars from Kanye West, and his money will cleanse him in some fashion. So you know that is, you know that is re re repugnant and 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 is a real is a is a is a real temptation. Uh, for people who do this kind of thing, particularly if it involves people of color, because then it also combines with outreach, combines, you know, look, we should all be, we should all be together, you know, because we're minorities and we have the same, you know, let, let's go back to when the NAACP's legal defense fund was being run by Jack Greenberg. And it's all wonderful because we're all in it together. You know, it's like 70 years ago, we have enough data on you know on the leading figures uh you know in the black community al sharpton jesse jackson louis farrakhan i know these guys are all old i i do and i but you know sadly then you got younger people like kanye and kyrie irving who are not political figures and are not but they are whoever they are and then you have you know and you have 
Ayanna Presley and uh, and other, and then you have the counter examples like Hakeem Jeffries. But but nonetheless, you know, we 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 know enough to know, you know, if you don't know who your enemies are, uh, you are going to get killed. I mean, if you don't know how to defend yourself against your enemies, you're going to get killed or you're going to get subverted. And yeah, it's a it's a very important point, uh, which gives me one uh, last moment to say that um, uh, I saw Tom Stoppard's play Leopoldstadt, uh, which is on Broadway, uh, opened in London uh, two and a half years ago and uh, oh, like almost three years ago and then had to close because of COVID. And so it couldn't get here. Stoppard is, uh, wrote the play when he was 82. He's now 85. Uh, and uh, it it is a it is an outgrowth of his essential discovery in his middle age that he was that he's Jewish that his uh, grew up in uh, Czechoslovakia his family left in thirty eight went to Shanghai his father died his mother moved to India married an English officer who adopted him then he came to London uh, became uh, Tommy Stoppard and then he as opposed to Thomas Straussner and then he. Ended up as this Boulevardier playwright uh, of immense renown in the in his mid twenties and has been uh, among the most famous writers in the English language since. And he met a relative from Argentina, and he said, "What what happened? Do we have any family left?" And she said, "They're all gone." And he said, "Where where what happened to them?" And she said, "Auschwitz, Auschwitz, Auschwitz, Auschwitz." And it had never occurred to him that this was his story. This is the story of a Viennese family, not a Czech family, over the course of uh, 57 years, living uh, set as one apartment uh, in Vienna, uh, starts uh, with a, uh, a conversation among this, this family about uh, Herzl's uh, book, The Jewish State, and about Freud, and about assimilation, and then uh, this whole question of whether or not you could be whether or not the future was bright for Jews in a place like Vienna because they were so culturally important and so culturally sophisticated and were leading in the arts and all of that. And then you see over time how delusional this is. And the play, and the final scene in the play, which takes place after the Holocaust with three relatives returning to this apartment where 21 other relatives have long since been dead, some something like 21 relatives, and uh, a young Englishman uh, shows up, and he, it turns out, is the Stoppard-like character. He ended up leaving Vienna after Kristallnacht with his mother and his mother's new fiancé, who was a British journalist, moves to London, becomes a writer. His name is changed from Leopold to Leonard Chamberlain. His name was Leopold, I don't know, Spiegelman. He becomes Leonard Chamberlain. And the last scene is him realizing what had happened to his family and how his own sense of security in his Britishness and his, uh, and that the, the idea is that his Judaism, he says, is almost like a, a, a flavoring, something a little exotic that makes him a little exotic. And that it's far more than something exotic, that there is no, that at any moment, Leopoldstadt is the name of a ghetto. Uh, it was the ghetto in uh, or the, the in Vienna that at any moment you 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 could go into Leopoldstadt. Um, this is something that Americans don't feel, don't think. There's never been, you know, a ghetto in the United States as as properly understood. There's never been, you know, since 
George Washington wrote his letter to the conversa- the, the the congregation in Touro, Massachusetts. This is a country that has been uniquely uh, and astonishingly hospitable to Jews, even despite certain types of social strictures uh, in their way. But as I say, you watch what's going on over the last seven or eight years, and a play like this haunts you. And I I, I say that I don't say that lightly because I I, I or glibly because. 10 years ago, I would have said it was an absurdity to say that we were anywhere in in the vicinity of that kind of feeling. But I could see 20 years from now, you know, my kids living through it. Uh, you should see Leopold Stadt if you can. I, I think it's I think it's on an open-ended run, but if you're ever in New York, you know, do whatever you can, pay whatever you can. It's an astonishing piece of work. Um <coughs> among the most powerful cultural experiences I've had in, in, you know, maybe in my lifetime, but certainly in the last, you know, 20 years. Um, anyway, why don't we, uh, we'll stop there. Christine should be back tomorrow. So the sausage party will end and we will be, we will be more um, gender integrated. And uh, we'll see you then. So for Noah and Abe, I'm John Pothoritz. Keep the candle burning.